Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. I'm Dale Stenberg, and I'm joined once again by my faithful co-host, Dr. Joseph Minnick, and I'll introduce our guest in just a minute. As most of you know, uh, Joe and I have an ongoing series wherein we discuss the various themes found throughout the works of C.S. Lewis. We've also talked about the phenomenon of archetypal patterns found in myth and fairy tales and fantasy for the purpose of showing the continuity of thought that is common to the human imagination. In our conversations, we've been treating the Son of God as both the source and sense maker of these patterns, and he took them upon himself in concrete history. But how do we bridge the gap between the specific of the hero's journey, for instance, found in these stories, and link them explicitly to Christ? Couldn't a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist claim that these patterns come to life in their own traditions? Or alternatively, perhaps there are other ways to frame the relationship between myth, story, literature, and the Christian claims. Well, joining us for today's show is our dear friend, Dr. Owen Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a professor of philosophy and religious studies at Arizona State University, and he's also the visiting scholar at Phoenix Seminary. He has written and lectured extensively on subjects such as epistemology, the liberal arts, philosophy, and theology. He joins us today to grapple with the question of how we can effectively use art in general and literature in particular as a means of introducing the Christian claims about reality, both to believers and non-believers alike. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us, brother. Yeah, it's great to be here with you both. Looking forward to our conversation. Yes. So since uh, Joe and I have done several episodes thinking through some of uh, the fiction of C.S. Yeah. Lewis, Perhaps it'd be appropriate to begin our conversation with how he viewed the role of imagination in apprehending Christian claims, and then we can talk about what you think is a wise use of art in the proverbial apologetic tool belt of Christians. Yeah. Mm. So Lewis viewed man as being composed of sort of three layers, and these three layers, they move out in concentric circles. For Lewis, at the bottom of man was his reason. And moving out from the reason was the will, and then moving out from the will is the imagination. Now, while all three of these aspects of man can be targeted by Christian engagement, Lewis believed that it was this surface layer of imagination that was the easiest layer to penetrate in order to introduce the schema of Christian thought via story. We see this attempt to accomplish that task in works such as the Narnia series and Till We Have Faces, the Ransom and the Ransom tri Trilogy, just to name a few. So perhaps a good way to start out our conversation, Dr. Anderson, would be to ask, what do you think are some of the erroneous ways of framing the relationship between literature and Christian doctrine? And perhaps you could then tell us where you think Lewis's approach fits onto that map. Yeah, good, good question. I think, because so, in our context, we're coming at this in the context of Christianity, and Lewis is held in, in high esteem. And I've, I've appreciated Lewis, grew up reading him, started with Narnia and, and built into the, uh, grew up into the sci-fi and then the apologetic works. So, it, so I wanna be careful because anytime you suggest, maybe Lewis could have done something else, someone says, well, why do you hate sure. Lewis? Right? So no, there's no, there's only appreciation for C.S. Lewis, no doubt about that. But uh, there's still room to critically think about 
some of the uh, ways you approach these topics. So that, that's what I'm doing. And same with Tolkien. We'll, we could treat those as slightly, slightly different, but, mm. but overlapping in some ways. Because interesting, I think Tolkien might have, Tolkien's own view of what he's doing uh, and, and the dislike of, of metaphor, direct metaphor to Christianity might be more similar to what I'm suggesting. Um, so yeah, a couple of things. Think about what we just said about reason, will, and then imagination. I think the way that reason's being developed in Lewis there, maybe we could call it mathematical reasoning or calculating reasoning. Because it's the idea that you, you could use reason positively or negatively. And in the, in the Ransom series, for example, the bad guys are very good at calculating, using reason as a calculating force, but they don't have imagination. Uh, I would think of reason differently. Imagination and calculation are two uh, of the uses of reason, but reason is the laws of thought by which we understand anything. So if we're, if we're doing mathematical calculations or we're doing uh, imagination, we're using reason to form those things. So just, just at the beginning, setting that out so we don't, we don't run into definitional problems later on. Now, the way you set up Lewis and the life of imagination remind me of Plato and his conflict with the artists. So he, he had a very similar view about what art can do, but he, he saw the negative side of it hmm. and wanted to ban artists, right, from the, from the Republic. Uh, art can be used to tap into people's imagination, bypassing their understanding, and then manipulate them. And because of that, that kind of thing shouldn't be allowed in, in his Republic. Whereas Lewis might say the other side, the easiest way to teach people is with these kinds of stories and use the imagination. Now, I think we could say it could go both ways. You can see where it could go one way or the other, right? But I think it's all gonna depend on what you're teaching. So what framework are you coming out of and, and what are you teaching the people? And I think there's also a threat that you're, you're thinking of the people perhaps too simple and they can do more than we're giving them credit for. So they don't just have to have stories, they can actually uh, learn more. But, but what do you think so far? Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, and I think one way of, I think your distinction is right on that we need to be, you know, the question then is a sort of like, what in what way is Lewis uh, kind of isolating something like reason? Uh, from Will in the imagination. And you're probably correct that in, in as much as we're making that kind of trifecta, if you will, that's probably a, a kind of particular way of using the notion of reason because the uh, whatever targets the imagination um, contains at least some implicit reasoning inside of it. In other words, there's a sense-making sort of laws. You're distinguishing of things like hobbits are hobbits and they're not non-hobbits. Yeah, yeah. There's and a, Gandalf there's is a, Gandalf, he's not Sauron. You're distinguishing yeah, yeah. So there's an implicit use of these tools, you know, pre-discursively, if you will, in the, in the imaginative sphere. But maybe, maybe what it does, maybe one way of framing it would be to say that um, uh, one role of imagination pedagogically is to sort of uh, uh, to create a kind of new plausibility space. It's to sort of fracture your sort of the ways in which you use categories uh, in a performative way almost to sort of like think of think of reality this way and now re-ask this question. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think part of what Lee Lewis is trying to do is sort of get you to enter a sort of mental space or there you could then you can kind of take that your will uh, and that sort of discursive, more explicit level of reasoning and say, you know, does this fit 
with these yeah, tools, right. these more explicit yeah, tools. It makes you press you to ask new questions. Sure. Yeah. And it, and it frames, like Joe's talking about, mm -hmm. it frames in a different way. I just finished up uh, Michael Ward's fantastic and fascinating book, uh, uh, Planet Narnia. And at the end of the book, he's uh, dealing with uh, questions of reception of the book and um, uh, you know, sort of why Lewis uh, wrote it. And uh, one of the theories is that when Lewis wrote Miracles, which is his first foray into philosophy and apologetics, um, he was uh, <clears throat> sort of, well, depends on who you ask, I suppose, but uh, embarrassed when uh, at the um, uh, Socratic Society in England, uh, he had a debate, and I always yeah. forget the woman's name. What's the woman's name? Elizabeth Abscombe. Abscombe. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Right, where she punched a pretty significant hole in one of his primary thesis. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he, re immediately after that, he wrote Narnia. Um, and some people are like, well, that's because he was retreating back to his childhood. He felt so infantile and, you know, he'd had to recoup and he was, you know, like the little boy embarrassed about not being able to live up to daddy's, uh, you know, ideal or whatever. Uh, but what <clears throat> Ward says is no, what that did for Lewis was it showed him that um, this technical approach to philosophy perhaps wasn't the best way to go about it. And so Lewis then tries to tap into the imagination as a means through which it's not a direct sort of like you yeah. were talking about uh, math and algebra, and that's a very logical um, you know, way to utilize reason. But what he thinks Lewis is doing is he thinks Lewis is trying to introduce the ideas of the Christian claim via uh, a more colorful expression of what Christianity is. Yeah. Uh, by storytelling and yeah. that's what I think Lewis has in mind when he when he uses the word imagination like Joe is mm -hmm. saying this sort of discursive relationship between reason and yeah. imagination so and, and let's say there there is that way like, like if you try to reduce all of the all of life to logic so he, he was encountering what might be called uh analytic philosophers right and yeah. if you try to reduce all of life to that. It's just, it, it turns out not to capture all of reality. There is the artistic side of reality. So we can affirm that, but it still comes back to what I mentioned earlier, which is it's going to depend on what your content is going in. And so we can examine some of that in Lewis right. and see where he's at. And that's why I do a token. Like I think, I think token, the world of middle earth is structured like the Gnostic world. And what I mean by that is not, not, not Gnosticism purely in terms of spirit and matter, but in terms of a hierarchy of beings where mm. you mostly have contact with incarnate angels and they're the ones battling out in our world. And the deity who formed the world is more like the Demiurge and he's distant, he's gone. You're dealing with Gandalf who's incarnate and Sauron who's trying to become incarnate. Well, that's not theism, right? So, so that's what I wanna look at is the, con the content of what the artist is trying to get across. So maybe what we could do is this, let's look at art and try to see what's it, what is definition of art? Why does it matter? Because I think sometimes Christians get uh, critiqued for their attempts at art because it comes across either as kind of sentimental or yeah. heavy handed preaching. And it just, it just Christians don't seem to understand art. What's going on? And yeah. I think what that's gonna do is push us into understanding general revelation. And, I, and, what, and unfortunately, I think that Christians may not understand art real well because they don't do a lot of work in general revelation. And there could be a few reasons for that. One might be that, that uh, it seems like general relation means Darwin and Marx. And we have to be afraid of those guys because they're, you know, general relation must be false because they're doing general relation. Uh, and the other reason might be, well, I'm saved. 
Uh, I accepted Jesus. Uh, I don't really need general revelation. Doesn't I mean right. what does that do? It just adds more things to study. So it could be a few reasons we could explore. Why why isn't general revelation neglected by Christians? I think, I think here's what I'll put out there for definition of art. Tell me what you think. Art is where we're using symbols to get to reality. It's one it's sentence. Not, definition. It's not bad. <laughs> That's a good, yeah, we're, it's, it's a, it, uh, yeah, it, 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 if, if nothing, yeah, it certainly gestures in the right direction, it seems. So to if me. someone comes to art and expects a philosophical discourse, they're going to be disappointed. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and this will get to some of my, the, the points I was raising about using apologetic uses of art. If someone tries to jump too far with art and say, to go beyond what it's symbolizing and try to say, uh, the gospel in the Mona Lisa, you know, I say, well, uh, you've gone too far here. You're not capturing the symbolism of the art. So it also protects against the idea that art is only realism. Art can be realism, but it's not only realism. There are, are other symbolic forms of art that aren't directly pictures of reality. Cause you might think Anderson seems to not like fantasy. Right. He must like only, only Dickens or something. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's room for, there's room for, uh, uh, symbolism in that sense, not realism, but it's all, it all comes back to what's being symbolized. Is the artist getting to reality or not? I so I told you makes... I'm going to write a fictional story about a, a tribe of square circles. <laughs> what, you, what you say about Christianity and art, I think, is crucial because, of course, I think most of us in this room, I, I don't know the age of everyone explicitly, but uh, uh, most of us were probably raised in the late 80s or early 90s or something like this. Uh, and in Christian art was an interesting phenomenon, you know, when you're being raised, you know, it's whether it be Christian music or Christian film, and you still see some of these tendencies in sort of big Eva Christian circles, where uh, you, you begin to think in terms of things like I'm a Christian artist, or I'm a Christian musician, yeah, it's or only Christian, like direct representation filmmaker. Christian filmmaker. And unfortunately, right. you know, the critique of that is often just somewhat, you know, sort of uh, evidentialist or almost scientific, why is it that everything that's prefaced with the word Christian very often by and large is bad? <laughs> right. um, but some of it was like the, you know, and, and there's a story to be, there's books to be written about this still, but like, you know, the, people are already talking about, you know, there's there's these books on the, um, the commercialization of sort of hippie vibes in the 70s. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like there was this hippie movement. And then by the seventies and early eighties, you get the commercialization of all that. Yuppies. And similarly, you see that in the, in the Christian movement, that there's, there's something part, part of what makes it bad art, honestly, is that it's very commercially driven art. Interestingly, yeah. it's, you know, just kind of filling a, a market for uh, a certain kind of evangelical consumption, uh, which doesn't tend to be the animus behind uh, excellent <laughs> statements. Well, but that does like, even now, let's say with secular art, almost all of it that I encounter is uh, political. So it's the same kind of branch. Like yeah, you're not doing art to do art, you're doing art to make a point yes. to your audience. Your audience is supposed to, to see your art and vote Democrat from now on. Right. And that's not art either. Right, right. Yeah, yes. and one thing I think you mentioned earlier uh, with Plato and the artists, and I want to connect this to something you just said um, with your definition of art being a symbol of reminding a symbol it's of reality symbolism to get to reality to get to reality yeah, not direct like like if i say my shirt is blue that's just a direct statement right uh and philosophy that's what philosophy does sure right? the artist isn't going to do that the artist is going to teach something through what's called the objective correlative 
there are, there are certain natural signs. Like if you see a maple leaf that's brown, you have a natural sign of autumn and the end of a cycle, the beginning of winter and loss, all these things come to mind. Just it's, it's very indirect. The artist doesn't have to tell you that stuff. Hmm. Or you see an empty doorway where there used to be a child. The artist doesn't have to tell you what happened. You, ha you have the sense of emptiness and loss. So there's, there's objective signs like that that the artist uses and the philosopher doesn't do that or the mm. mathematician doesn't do that. So protecting art means understanding. That's what it's going to do. You can't reduce art to philosophy or math and you can't reduce those to, to this, right. but, but it's only going to be as good as far as the artist is getting us to reality. And, and interestingly, come, we'll come back to this if you want, but the artist may not even know it. That's what's interesting about art. Philosophy is different. To do good philosophy, you have to know you're doing it. The artist, this is why the Greeks would say he's taken over by the muse. And, and, and a Homer prays to the muse at the beginning of the Iliad. And we have that sense still, right? Where artists might like, think they have to use drugs or something beforehand. Yeah. Because yeah. Socrates encountered this in the uh, Apology. He said he went to three groups, the politicians, the artists, and the tradesmen. And the artists were the least able to explain their own work. Anybody else could explain their work better than them because they just kind of do their work. Mm. So I'm not necessarily getting at that the, the artist, he, he's sometimes the last person you can ask. I don't know, for me, it, for me, it happens when I see, like I see a movie, I really liked it. And then I watch the, the, the end of credit stuff where they interview the actors. Right. So disappointed. Like, you didn't get what at all. Like you lived this movie for nine yeah. months. Like, I, you yes. I was just a great example of this as I was just a, uh, a, maybe a year and a half ago, I read through uh, N.K. Yemison uh, wrote this uh, trilogy, a sort of sci-fi trilogy called the, the Broken Earth Trilogy hmm. or, or the Fifth Season Trilogy. I'm, I'm misremembering the name of it, but she, it's, she's the first person in history, African-American woman, to win the Hugo Award three consecutive years in a row. Nobody's ever done this for hmm. each book of her trilogy. And as a, at a uh, at a descriptive level of a kind of non-earth setting, but sort of system of oppression as a sort of phenomenology of the psychology of oppression, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, it's actually a remarkable piece of 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 the sort of internal world of a system of oppression. Yeah, that's what that but, that's what that life imagination can do for us. Yes, and what she but when but when the author sort of like what you just said when the author Yemazin herself actually gets in front of a microphone, she often will talk politically in the language of sort of critical theory language about yeah. oppression, and it's so much less illuminating. It's so interesting. Like in her in the author's own head, this phenomenology of oppression in the narrative and this theory actually go together, and to me they don't go together. Yeah. <laughs> and and so on the one hand, I'm appreciating the author's work, but disagreeing with uh, well, that's yeah, that's how it is. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, the, uh, so the idea, in other words, art becomes something independent of its creator. So you could, uh, the, the artist may be the last person to ask to say, well, what does this really mean? That's called author's intent. And it's kind of interesting to get author's intent, but it may not matter. Like the artist themselves become, once they produce their art, they become one of us thinking about what they produced. Mm. And, and so author's intent only goes so far. It's more like anybody else saying, yeah, this is what I thought uh about when i did it and we could say wow that's it you, you don't get it either yeah but what yeah. happens is if the author is trying to get across a point and this comes to your, your first the first things you were saying about lewis if you are trying to teach something then it is going to be shaped by how well that message is formed 
and then you're getting more into like a moral tale or a uh, uh, like a Aesop's fable. You're getting more into that realm, not as much in art anymore. So how would you, how would, how would um, just a lay reader go about trying to distinguish uh, what the, in, well, I guess if we're saying that the author, the authorial intent is not the <clears throat> sort of dominant thing that needs to be in the front of our mind when we're encountering a piece of art or in try, trying to interpret the piece of art, but some um, author's intention is, um, you know, trying to push the audience in one moral direction how do we distinguish those two pieces of art? And then how can Christians sort of co-opt that? Maybe co-op's the wrong word, but how could Christians um, understand that, that piece of literature or art or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and then say, this points to these overarching archetypal structure mm -hmm. patterns yeah, in reality those. that point to a uniformity that lends credence to the claims of Christianity. Yeah, I guess that's really what we're trying to... Yeah, that's what we want to get at. So... so so two, two, two things there, and underneath this idea of how can Christians learn to appreciate and interpret art, right? I think that, I think the older phrase would have been rather than being Philistine, right? right. So the Philistines don't get art and the uh, others do. So, uh, and, and not making everything commercial, right? Or, right. or a heavy handed lesson, like a moral lesson. As soon as it, you can see that coming, right? As soon as it's a moral lesson, it's like, all right, here we go. This is different right. than art. Yep. We've all um, watched a Kendrick Brothers movie, probably. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah, and you feel, I mean, you feel like you want to support it because you understand, like, they have good intentions in one sense. Yes. But yes. As long as you say it, what it is. I mean, this is what it yes. is, and maybe it's good but it's for... But twenty. it's 25 distinct moral lessons in the space yeah. of 90 minutes, exactly. Yeah, and you can say there's a place for that, moral yeah. teachings, but it's not yet, it's not the same as art, is all we could say. And, right. and so the Christian, just like I was mentioning, maybe a secular artist might want you to see this and conclude critical theory is true. But the Christian's in the same position. If a Christian's doing something and wants you to include the gospel of Matthew's true, well, that's the same thing, right? And, and so in the same way, they're not quite get, getting to art. And so then that brings up your idea, well, what about what, what are, how do we get the Christians to appreciate? And this is one of the things I do at Phoenix Seminary is I have a, a uh, reading group, a great books reading group, which is not for credit, but, it, but a number of the persons who are pursuing the MDiv, uh, I approach it the same way as you would scripture. Like, how do we interpret scripture? Well, how do we interpret art? A pastor needs to know how to interpret art. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, the first thing would be, you ask about the layman, get a hold of a piece of literature, since we're talking about literature, especially, is that's reputed to be a great book. Maybe start with a, uh, a shorter example and, and read it, soak yourself in it, just observe it and ask yourself what you think of as you're going through that process. So they, I think... I think I might have shared with you a video of mine where I talked about one of Tolstoy's short stories, The Death of Ivan right. Illich. That's a great one to start with because it's relatively short. It's like 40 pages and it's not heavy handed. It's just a story of a life of a guy and, and his death. But just by reading through that, I think anybody would see a number of themes that they would want to explore from having looked at it. Mm. Why does, what, what, what makes this guy stop and think? What makes him reconsider his life? And there's a number of characters. How do they understand his death? How does his wife think of his death and his daughter think of his death and his son? And then there's a uh, servant. How does that guy think of his death? So it's interesting to, to work through and don't try to get to a lesson. Just try to get to what's presented about reality. Is this real? Is it, I mean, is this true? Is this how most of us face death? Mm -hmm. As opposed to, okay, Tolstoy is trying to make you into Eastern Orthodox Christian. Right. 
I recall right. Alistair Roberts talking about this when he approaches the scriptures. Uh, one of the things uh, he, I, I think I asked him once something along the lines of, you know, what, what questions should you bring to the text? Right. Uh, and he said something similar to what you said just now, which is actually, I think the first thing to do is not to bring questions to the text. No. I think it's actually just to sit in front of the text and let it work on you, let it With wash art, over yeah. you and sort of uh, let, let, as it were, let the muses smack you around a little bit. Uh, <laughs> well, here's part of the thing is that we can become more or less refined. I think that's what the teacher of art will do is point out things that you might be missing. Like mm -hmm. I have had the experience, I was taken to hear symphonies when I was younger. And then I don't know what's going on. Rel relatively boring because I have no idea. It's just a lot of sound for 90 minutes. But then as a, as a, a professor is telling you, like, this is what the artist is doing this is the intro, this is the middle, this is the conflict in the piece, this is the resolution. And you begin to realize the details that are there, it opens up in meaning and, and, and you wanna know more and more because you realize I, I know 10% now and it's fascinating. I wanna know 50% and 80%. And, and the same could be true of painting rather than approaching a, a painting, like what's he teaching me? Just observe the painting and and, and, and you could be taught. What are, what, are, what are painters doing? What are What school is this? What is what is happening here? How is it reacting to previous ones? Why is this happening in the painting the way it is? And it starts to open up the meaning of it. Hmm. And if you just say, well, we need to find the gospel in the Mona Lisa. All right. You're missing that stuff. Yeah. So would you say that um, art is uh, innately subjective? So I, oh. we use the, we use a phrase a lot in modernity, like um, beauty is in the eye of the yeah. beholder. And I guess for some, uh, what they could hear you saying is something like, well, encounter the piece of art and as you encounter it, sort of appreciate it for what it is, at, get, get from it what you can. But what you really need is an expert to guide you along the deeper, under, the deeper threads that the artist is weaving that you might not be aware of because you're not trained in X, Y, and Z. You haven't had a robust study uh, yeah. training in the humanities or the liberal arts or philosophy or architecture or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so uh, is that what you're saying, number one, which I don't think that's what you're saying. No, well, but, what like. but we'll clarify that because there could be some people asking that question. And then I guess the a second part of that question would be, what? how is it that Christians um, could just grab a hold of a piece of art and not automatically import their Christianity into the story, but objectively stand outside of it, recognize these common themes for what they are and then dis and then sort of talk about them in, in intelligent ways in relationship to their faith and why is that unique than yeah. somebody else or is it not unique to yeah. to a christian than and it that is same question is really what we've been we're driving towards in our right. whole conversation because you brought up earlier uh archetypes so we haven't yet we haven't really got there yet so let me right. i'll do the first one then we'll start to get into to those ones because yeah i'm not suggesting we need an expert at all if it's art you don't need an expert uh, but we, we probably know art experts who really, they find their meaning in life and seeing like these little tiny details that no one else saw and they can write a dissertation on that. So that, that's not what I'm talking about at all. Um, but by going through a process of like great books discussion, which I sure. lead, that process, even with the people who aren't leading it, but as you hear them bringing things out, you're just, you're just automatically paying attention to more details in the, in the work. 
So that's what I was getting at. I don't think it's subjective because I think art has to rely on, I mean, subjective, because I think art has to rely on the objective correlative. It's using signs that speak to all of us. Hmm. They're not purely culturally bound. I mean, hypothetically, maybe if someone's never been around trees that lose their leaves, they won't get the symbol of the maple leaf. But anybody who's ha who has will, will, will recognize a similar symbol going on. Right. So it's an imprincipal. That's when it's art, is when it gets to objective reality. And that's that can occur in fantasy, not just realistic fiction, but it has to do that. So that's why I joked around earlier like, what if, if I tell you I'm writing a fantasy series about a tribe of square circles? Right. Well, that's clearly not possible. But if it's a couple steps removed from that, it's still a square circle. So that's where the idea of possible worlds comes in. What exactly is a possible world? And is this one a possible world? And a lot of times when the, the author of those starts to flesh it out, it becomes disappointing. I think most people felt that with the Star Wars series. As soon as you find out that the force are little, little things in your blood, it's like, what, that's it? But right. it's gonna be something like that because this is it's based on a, du a Taoist model. So right. it, it isn't art anymore. It's just Taoist story. And as soon as Lucas starts to flesh it out, we'll find the contradictions that are involved in that kind of dualism. Hmm. Hmm. So, so is one approach that you might take then in as much as, in as much as Christians are, are sort of looking at art and the kind of gestures toward reality, objective reality, that correlative you're talking about that art makes um, that the reason, the reason uh, art in its correlative might link up to Christianity just simply has to do with the fact that Christianity is objectively true. Right. In so, other words, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, that's what I was gonna say is that I think for many of us coming to it, we have that assumption in mind. And so then it's very easy for us to say, Gandalf is kind of like Christ. Uh, but that's the point I'm pushing on is to say, no, that's too quick of a jump. Right. Even if Christianity is true, and then it would become circular to use it as an apologetic. Since we know Christianity is true, the things I see as a Christian prove Christianity is true. Right. Right. Well, that's a circular argument, right? Right. And, and at the beginning, you said, well, the Hindu could say the same thing. They have they have great epics, the longest epic in human history, the Mahabharata. So, so you can't say epics somehow prove Christianity without doing a lot of work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Nevertheless, there there is this phenomenon Um Joseph Campbell's sort of spent his life yeah, good. exploring this phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the more popular level book, I guess, is uh, Hero of the Thousand Faces. And Joe and I have talked about this before, yeah. um, but he, he uh, traces out the hero's journey, which I also mentioned in the introduction. And I'm very sympathetic to Campbell's project. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but I remember watching your series of Facebook posts on this. And if you don't follow Dr. Anderson on Facebook, you must. He's, huh. he's, he's a wonderful man <laughs> and uh, lots of great insights. But you really challenged me, maybe even triggered me a little bit in, in some of uh, your posts. And I'm like, but that made me think like, this is true. Why is it that I approach, um, you know, some of these archetypal themes that I find um, throughout fairy tales and myths and stories and fantasy and uh, whatnot? And how come I reduce it down to Christianity? Is it because I'm a Christian? And I really had to wrestle with that and go, well, yeah, on a, on a real fundamental level, I want whatever contributes to what I believe to 
be like that is what the intent is of course it lends to what i believe right because Mm -hmm. i've got it all figured out and these silly people over there they just don't have the magic key that unlocks the the mystery of the story and opens up their consciousness to receive the gospel right yeah and um that's that's one of the reasons that i i think that what the work that you're doing is so fascinating and it's important because a lot of people today, in, especially in uh, Christian circles, a lot of younger people anyway, I should say, they're picking up on what Jordan Peterson is saying. They're being introduced to archetypes. Yeah. And perhaps what they're doing is like making the archetypes carry a load in which they were never designed to carry. Yeah. So if they want to use this, these patterns that they find throughout the world and throughout history in you know, story form, as a means to defend the Christian faith, then that's an appropriate impulse, but we have to be able to do it well. We have to be able to yeah. do it better than the, we have to be able to show why it's these stories and these archetypes comport better with Christian theology than they do with, as we're saying, like Hindu theology or Buddhist theology or whatever. Yeah. Or, or else I would start even a little differently rather than does this, is this, does this more consistently align with Christian theology I would start with what does this say about gender revelation? Yes. Mm. So I think the relationship we understand between those two will affect the way we approach this question. And if I can do a shameless plug, one of mm. my books is titled, just happen to have it right next to me, right. Clarity <laughs> of God's Existence. Nah. And uh, I talk about that in there. That I talk about the, the clarity of gender revelation in there. Mm. In contrast to saying either it's not clear or it's vague. I talk about the general relation clearly reveals the eternal power and divine nature of God. And if someone doesn't see it, it's not the fault of general relation. It's the fault of themselves, which is precisely then raising the need for redemption Mm. because you don't see what's clear about God. You're in the state of sin, not seeking God, not understanding, not doing what is right. And you need to be redeemed. So then that opens up a whole new world about redemption as well. But redemption presupposes that clarity of general revelation. So I think if, we're, if we've re- basically bypassed that segment and we've just gone right to scripture, then we'll do that same thing with art. We'll look for scripture in art. And we've lost all the things we can learn from gender relation. Mm. So what happens with, with uh, Campbell, Peterson Campbell, of course, is that they're Jungians. Right. And Jung is not a theist. He, he's more like a monist. And he's especially all is one. And you tap into the highest reality by a kind of non-cognitive experience. And so Campbell takes that teaching and looks especially at the religious stories of the world and tries to find similarities that match Jung's teaching about the world. So right away, we know this is going in the wrong direction. Even if the general truth, which is that there's patterns and there's only so many plots, right? There's like 12 plots or something. Right. Even if that's true, there's patterns. Campbell's not operating in a vacuum. He's operating as a Jungian. And then Joseph Campbell's looking for the same kind of pattern. So I remember Christians being excited because he was asked, I think by Sam Harris, if he would say that Jesus didn't raise from the dead and and, and Peterson didn't say, he said, no, I can't say that. And Christians were like, yeah, that's because he's living in this area of archetypes where that's one of the stories, what happens to the hero. He's not talking in the same way that Sam Harris is about history. Right. So Let's critique this a little bit and, and see what we can do is do something better. Not because he's a Jungian, 
drop it all, but instead say, no, there's a clear generation about God. And so we'll see certain patterns come out in human history about sin, about the role of suffering. And in fact, I think that's what drives most narratives is the problem of evil. Yeah. Why is there suffering? You're going along just fine, gardening in the Shire, and suffering comes into your life, and you got to do something about it. So think of any story, right? There's some, that's what motivates the characters. And, and there's, there's suffering from moral evil, and there's suffering from natural evil. And so that's a pattern that you'll see all the time going on. That's what happens with even Illich, is he gets sick. And he, he was going along, getting raises at work. He, he was hanging some curtains. He had enough money to, to redecorate his house. He was hanging some curtains and he slipped and hit his side on the fireplace. And it began hurting more and more. None of the doctors could help him. And so suddenly he begins thinking about his life and the people around him and how superficial they are because he sees his impending death and how nothing he'd been doing in life actually matter. Curtains don't matter that much. Yeah. So that's a very natural thing. You don't have to, Tolstoy doesn't have to tell us life is superficial, but he can show it through the life of even Illich. And so that's an objective pattern that people can get to without, without you know, importing something from the this Bible, like Tolstoy halfway through quoting from the Gospel of John or something, because he's dealing with general relation patterns that speak to everybody. Yeah. Do you think that there's something of, because this is obviously a, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a tricky line sometimes between when you, when you hit the boundary between general and special revelation. And on the one hand, it's very easy to see that stories and narratives and motifs and archetypes have a sort of general revelation significance, like you were just saying, like they, you know, they teach you general truths that the sages of the nations can all pick up on, you know, such that Paul can quote them, you know, yeah. you know, without, without being nervous, you know, these quoting, you know, pagan philosopher in Acts yeah. 17 or whatnot. Um, but you, you also made another interesting comment and that is uh, the way I would say it is something like uh, general revelation can sometimes be almost the negative photocopy of what you anticipate special revelation to need. In other words, sort of like general revelation can show you that you're a sinner. Yeah, it's, only, uh, it it's only used for that it, reason. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't quite show you exactly who and what and where the redeemer is, mm -hmm. but it might in a sort of negative, in, yeah. in a sort of negative contrastive way, suggest to you that you need a redeemer. And I guess yeah. the question is where, where literature is a little more complicated is that it can both um, that sort of negative photocopy space of the imagination can be deployed both to suggest there's plenty of stories which just sort of come from that existential space of life or plenty of pieces mm -hmm. of art, which just come from that existential space of life where we recognized we and everything around us is screwed up or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's and, not too hard to do. But right. there's but there's also in stories almost like a, uh, and, and I wonder if this can still be art, you know, in your definition, like not so much like I'm trying to tell the specific story of the Christ, but I, I nevertheless detect uh, in this, whatever space we want to call this, some need for redemption. And yeah. so I can tell stories that reflect that longing, that hope structure, as it were. And maybe yeah, that's what I'd say that the reality of the need for redemption is deeply rooted in the human mind because everyone recognizes something's wrong with the world. Right. Right. So, so then you get different attempts to deal with it. Like the Buddhist might say, overcome desire, and then you'll be okay. Uh, or the Hindu might say, well, ultimately, this world's not real. Right. And, and there are stories to go with this. Yeah. yeah. Right. They right. can have their own story. So what I would want to say is that general relation ha could have levels from less basic things to more basic things. 
And, and the most basic things have to do with what's clear about God. Right. So, so if someone if someone knows that two plus two is four from general relation, it's like, hey, great. Uh, everyone knows that. But have you got to the most basic things about the structure of reality? And that's why I'm not very impressed. There's a lot impressive about the work and imagination of the Lord of the Rings and, and the whole Middle Earth, everything else connected with it. Great. But once we start to flesh out, just like with Star Wars, I'm not all that impressed about what it says about the good, the highest good for humans. Because I would say this, from generation, we know that our highest good is to know God. Every human can, on earth can know that. That was there from the beginning of the world. That's already true before Christ. You should know that. So when I get a structure that is either no stick in terms of hierarchies and God is distant or dualist like star wars there's good and evil and they're both balancing each other out or monist like young i'm not too impressed with those stories because they're missing a fundamental feature of reality mm. Mm. so what is the highest good for a hobby like to be virtuous i guess yeah this is that is an interesting question and one one possibility is that um uh i i, I don't know this because of course there's so much there are so many layers to what's going on in Tolkien. Yeah. And on the one hand, it's a commentary. I mean, you could argue it's also a commentary on like, uh, you know, sort of the, the international globalist yeah. era of the 20th century. I think that's why I said earlier, he doesn't like that. There's those, there's those layers going on, but it might also be uh, along these lines. And I wonder if it's a, um, uh, they were, Tolkien and Lewis were so into Owen Barfield and sort of his, his yeah. sort of almost Hegelian history of consciousness and you wonder if it's you wonder if Tolkien is almost like a uh, the weird Barfieldian world of uh, original participation. Yeah, well, I, I think so. That, that's what I mean. Is I I think is once we flesh this out, uh, we're not going to be happy with what we find. And I, I think Jung is in that same stream of Hegelianism. Hegel's a monist. All things ultimately reconcile into one. All yes. is one. Unless so I don't think we'll be. I, th I think if you leave it as a, an enjoyable, interesting story with characters like to follow, great. As soon as you start to flesh out, say, no, this gets to the deepest meaning of life. Nah, yeah, unless sure you're, unless you're, or, or you're trying to make a sort of hybrid project. And I think that's where it's like, uh, um, like those critiques, actually the critiques you're making, I think make an enormous amount of sense. And I think maybe what's going on in somebody like Lewis and Tolkien is they're trying to almost redeem these structures over against their monism implicitly. Uh, sometimes not, you know, one might say you know, not going far enough, but it seems like sometimes there is an, oh, and you see this in the same thing with like, till we have faces. We talked about this, Andrew Lazo a couple of weeks ago, that Lewis is kind of trying to imagine how paganism might work in a positive way. Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> you know, that's, right. uh, and yeah, that's a, that's an uncomfortable space in some ways. Well, for, same uh, with Tolkien. Someone could say that, well, what these guys are doing is showing that the pagans got some things. Yeah. So this still is about what is general relation. Yes. I think at the fundamental level, all humans, including the pagans, fail to see what's clear about God. They may make other insights. And that's why all humans need redemption. Because if you didn't fail to see what's clear about God, then what sense do you need redemption? So everyone fails with that. Now, the pagans have other insights. Like they develop math, the Pythagorean theorem and architecture. Uh, they can be virtuous. I don't know if you realize this, but that was a surprise to medieval Christians to find out there could be virtuous right. unbelievers. Yeah. Like Suleiman, the It'd be a uh, surprise to modern-day Christians, too. What? <laughs> modern-day yeah, Christians right. are surprised yeah, to right. some of them. Clearly, they can't be virtuous. <laughs> yes. But virtue, I would define virtue as the means to the good, not the same as the good. So when people tell me about 
look, if you look in Middle Earth, you see all these great virtues, like Samwise is very friendly and consistent. Well, that's great, but what is the highest good for him? It seems to be a kind of sentimental, easy life, smoking your pipe and you have a garden. Where's knowing God in any of this stuff? Hmm. Yeah, well, it's not, it's, you're right that that, at least it's, I'm not a Tolkien expert, but that's not, ex, that's certainly not explicit. And I don't think you could put it in there because of his view of the, the, the God who forms the world. It's not, it's not theistic. Mm. I think about, so we have faces is like that too. And I wonder about this with Narnia and keep in mind that I, I, I've loved Narnia, sure. read every book when I was in, in middle school or multiple times, but where's God? Like, does the creation reveal God or, or there's only the redemptive work of Aslan? I and still we have faces about how God is distant and very difficult to know and you need to have an experience to know God. That's not the clarity of general revelation. I think by the end, uh, and Lazo pointed this out, it is interesting. I only noticed it in my second pass through the book, but at the end of uh, Till We Have Faces, uh, God is addressed in the singular. Uh, whereas in the rest of the book, the God, the gods are plural. And so yeah. there does seem to be an, an or, 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 or walls sort of spiritual journey, some transition. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, the book's a journey. Yeah. Some, some clarified concept. And there is, there is something, um, you do get this, uh, moment in the, uh, the magician's nephew of Aslan creating from nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, yep. which is which is remnant and it's though even there it's not straight up um sort of the old testament account it's much more inflected through the logos you know it's like it's aslan yeah, that's what we need to get to the, the father yeah well, and, and so i don't think a, well i don't think lewis in the narnia series he's not trying to present christian theism as a metaphor as if like this is this is just a an, an analogy He's trying to say this is what the gospel would look like in a completely different universe, in a in a different world. What if there was the this world called Narnia? Yeah, and uh, the savior was a lion. Yeah, and the lion was the highest good. So he's not trying to he's not trying to dress dress up the uh, the Christian claims in metaphor. He's yeah. he's playing with. Um, a sort of real imaginative interpretation of the cosmos as if there were different alien worlds in that needed redemption. And this is what redemption would look like on that world. Yeah. You need to understand Narnia. Yeah. Like one of the tricks of Narnia, I think is that the Christian world already exists in Narnia because you go from here where Jesus already exists yeah. to Narnia. And it's almost like the medieval there was, you know, this medieval debate about if, you know, if we discovered life on other planets, would there need to be other incarnations? Mm -hmm. And Lewis right. is almost sort of imagining a, a space somewhere yeah. else, you know, where the same, and it's almost like you're quite, you're almost, I think, in Narnia seeing what he is portraying is a, in, in one way, a quite literal world, uh, a quite literal world uh, that is a parallel world to ours. And by getting outside of ours and into this utter, other literal world, you sort of see the, you see your own world uh, mm -hmm. sort of inflected through it in a different and way. And someone could say, look, don't ruin it. This is why we don't invite philosophers to parties. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Just enjoy it for what it is, Anderson. What's right. your problem? Right, right. Right, that's true. And But we've already entered a different space than art, right? Mm -hmm. We're already trying to figure out what was he trying to do? And so if you're right, Dale, what he's trying to do is what would the gospel look like in another world? That's not quite the same as how we define art earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Now he has a motivation. He's trying to do something in this. 
And so it's more like a moral story or an illustration of something than a piece of art, which is fine. And it's also fine to say to the philosopher, stop thinking about this stuff, just enjoy it. But I wonder, simply like this, like what, what makes a talking animal's life meaningful in Narnia? That's a, a good kid, question. Thought, <laughs> it's great to be there. It's really magical. But right. you, you can imagine ennui setting in, right? And the, the little talking badgers getting bored with life. But what would make their life meaningful? Maybe Aslan might show up in the future. Hmm. Well, maybe it's the, uh, yeah, I don't know. Because then I feel like you're just going to scream at me and be like, well, stop philosophizing. <laughs> no, you can't. That's what, but I think that's a natural question, especially right. when you're dealing with characters is how do they find meaning in life? Like ultimately, what is Samwise going to find meaning in? You just become this guy who sits around the Shire talking about a story. No one, I was in Mordor. Right. Hey, yeah, pal, this is that, that's absolutely. I, I think that is a crucial question. Uh, it's it's an interesting question to ask, even of um. It, it it's 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 a question we have to ask ourselves about the story we tell ourselves about ourselves as yeah. well, which it's yeah. interesting to me in moral life. In fact, one way to sort of falsify a moral vision. Uh, or to show its imaginative limits is in, you know, when you think of a movement like modern progressivism, for instance, I think it's yeah. very interesting to ask, like, what if you could have everything you wanted? Right. What would the world actually be like? And I think you actually wind up coming to a place where you're like, that sounds actually yeah. kind of boring. I was talking <laughs> about my students this semester and say, and I was asking them what they think the problems in the world are. And they were saying, well, inequality of income and various other kinds of inequality. inequality. I said, all right, let's imagine a world where we have equal income for everyone equal housing, equal cars, and equal Soma. Hmm. Is your life meaningful? Because now you're just living in, in Brave New World. Right. Yeah. And it's not meaningful. Yep. So all those things, you see, if you have equal, equal income, housing, a, a car, you need Soma because life is empty. Right? <laughs> yeah. We're still kind of circling around the idea of archetypes. When is a story? What is beneficial from a story is... Uh, uh, and, and behind that, something you raised earlier, Dale, is about apologetic use of a story. Right. So I think once we get to that point of apologetic use, we're outside of art now. And, and we've incorporated the art for our purposes. And that, that might also explain, uh, Joe, besides the commercialization, might also explain why some of that Christian uh, work was what it was. Because it's really apologetics, it's not art. Those are different kinds of things. Yeah. So and maybe might, might say, well, why does Satan get all the great rock stars? But in one level, they're just trying to do rock and roll, right? They're not trying to get you. Right. I mean, there is a consistent kind of theme in their stories in rock and roll, but they just want to do the guitar really well. Right. right? Uh, I remember, yeah, I remember there was a Simpsons where the Smashing Pumpkins were on it and and they were talking to Lisa Simpson about their work. And she said, well, great. You, you make teenagers depressed, right? How hard is that? <laughs> right. <laughs> so showing the negative side of life isn't too hard. But showing it well is hard. I think showing showing the actual emptiness coming back to the need for meaning in life. Hmm. And so that that rather than say where does Jesus show up in the Middle Middle Earth stories, ask that question. I mean, what what makes their lives meaningful? Hmm. Is there Maybe any revelation one... of the glory of God, anything similar to that in their lives that would give them lasting meaning? Yeah, maybe one way of threading th threading this, you know, toward that apologetic question would be to talk about um, 
So, so one element that is going on, certainly in Lewis, is the notion of myth becoming fact. And yes. so it, it's one thing to say sort of like everybody can, every pe people from different religions or different, uh, you know, religious traditions can kind of look at the same body of stories and, and gar garner some of the, either do two things. Uh, on the one hand, garner just the very same truths from them or uh, project their own distinctives into them. You know, everybody can kind of read their own distinctives into the patterns. Um, but it does seem interesting to, to suggest that uh, the way in which that's done in Christianity is, is at least uh, slightly distinctive in that the way in which it reads itself into those stories is to say that those stories actually became a historical event in some way, or that what they're the kind of ultimate reality that they're illuminating gets repeated in its most archetypal and concrete way in a historical event. Whereas I don't gather this quite the same thing is true in Hinduism and Buddhism, like, uh, 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 and to some extent, even Islam, where the, the content of the metaphysics and of the, the faith uh, uh, and of the faiths don't depend in precisely the same way upon the uh, on making some claim about an event, you know, between these years and a concrete historical location. And so I wonder if um, it's, it's, I wonder if you could respond to something like this. It would be funny to, to maybe reverse uh, Plato. You know, he says the, the poets tell many a lie, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and it would be interesting. Uh, it, it, Tolkien also uses this language, you know, will the bad things come untrue? Another question might, might be, uh, do, does Christ, does the actual incarnation of the Christ make the myths unfalse? Uh, Which is good, you know. so, because that came up also in Dale's intro. Yes. Mm. And, and, I'm, and briefly, the logos came up earlier, but I think we should return to that, the logos. Mm. And I think you're already jumping levels if you go to the logos incarnate. But I think yeah. most people are doing that for the reasons we discussed earlier about general relation. So they want to find a historical fact in the cross, but they're not seeing what made the cross necessary in human humans not seeking and not understanding, and not doing what is right. How Paul right. summarized the sin in Romans three, and um, so the the first temptation. Oh, before I go to that, uh, so the logos I think first in John one one, the eternal Son of God, and then John one four he speaks about it as the what the light of man. Hmm. What is this light he's talking about? I mean, not physical light, right? Right. And this is before the he gets the incarnation. It's way before that. Right. It's like the illuminating principle or yeah. something like that. And he has yeah. what the word reason means. That by which we understand. And that's what the word logos can mean. Right. So that, that very thing by which we understand is what made the world and the world makes God known. The logos makes God known. Then he says that the logos is in the creation. And then he says he came to his own. I tell you that means through the prophets, that's the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Then he says, because all those means of the of logos were rejected, then he comes incarnate, full of grace and truth. So we don't want to jump levels and go immediately to the incarnation. Right. I actually answered a phone call on my computer. I was, I was trying to push delete. Uh, what about the logos is earlier? Like I was mentioning the first temptation, thinking about what's being tempted there. And, and I, then we can bring up how young understands it. You, God doesn't want your deep because God knows then you'll be like him. Knowing mm. good and evil the way God does. So Freud and young 
and really incidentally the, the the luciferian tradition yeah take that to mean lucifer is the enlightened one he brings light and, right. and i don't know if you know this but a lot of times when you look at masonic uh, uh what's it called the uh, keystones not no the cornerstones hmm. masonic cornerstones will have a date and it'll say al hmm. because they don't date ad they date anno luminous the year of or the year of enlightenment which was the fall the year when humans not to creation but to the fall of man which isn't a fall is when they became enlightened right and so i think that's the archetype you're actually seeing are two are possible archetypes we mm -hmm. call the luciferian archetype which is that there is this demiurge he did make things but he's a slave master and he wants to make you into his slave and freedom is much better than that you should free yourself from his rule and i'll teach you how to be free of the created beings i'm the best of the created beings Hmm. It's true that God could crush any one of us at any time, but that's just because all he does is use his force. I actually think, and I present you with options. You can then oh, choose interesting. yourself. Yes. That's a Luciferian story. And some version of that, you, you can be as your own gods. And so you'll see that story coming down. That's not the other style of story, which is that it was clear that they can't be God. They should have known that. As soon as Lucifer said, and you can be like God. No, I'm a creature. I was made by God. I can't be God. And God determines what is good because he's the creator and I'm not. So I don't determine what's good. He does. And that's the, that's the path that leads to understanding why we need redemption. Right. So I think a lot of times the archetypes you'll find are that first one. You'll see that that's who Prometheus is, right? He defies right. the evil mean gods to bring humans enlightenment. He's Lucifer. Yeah. You'll see that story over and over. That's the archetype that's interesting to find and see how, how common it is in human history. So right. did, don't you think that, um, and, I've, and I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying, do you think that there's something about the uniformity of just stories in general, though, that by abstraction, you can say, okay, there's this, there are, because we have all of these stories that are being told that have these general revelation uh, sort of uh, um, <clears throat> impulses baked into them, extract something out of us like the world is bad i'm going to die what's going to happen to me after i die i need i need to do something with all the badness in me like those general themes show up in all these different variant art forms and that phenomenon by itself indicates that humanity is operating in some realm that we all sort of understand our need. We, we all understand these general uh, patterns. And that is in itself indicative of something bigger than humanity, bigger than this reality. And then when, when we try to approach that and then say, well, here's why. Here's why you feel that way. Here's why you're noticing those patterns. Here's why that general instinct that you have is in you as a human. I think that's really, at least in my own personal experience, that's what I try to do. Like yeah. what I ask unbelievers a lot of time is, why is it? Why is it that you feel so drawn towards these certain stories? Why yeah. is it that you resonate so deeply with a hero? Why, why do you like the fact that the valiant... Um, uh, soldier, ki ki the knight kills the dragon Why? Wh and gets the girl. Why is that like exciting to you? And then I say, well, this is why. 
because we all are trying to overcome evil and and yeah you recognize there is good and evil right i think what i bring it to especially is as i've done so a couple times is the need for meaning why do stories mm. that you think provide your life with meaning interest you so much i mean that's what's going on i think in the middle earth it's fascinating you can there's so much to learn about this place it's really interesting and that's what happens in these these uh, advanced games uh, yeah. the kids play like I always joke around like I don't know like like remember Halo like, <laughs> my students play Anderson, which was the best game by the way best what? game ever made best yeah, game right? but but they play like Red Dead Redemption and there's a whole world you can explore it's yeah. fascinating so I think that taps into our need for meaning however I don't think we can actually extend it too far and say everybody because I don't know if you've ever seen like a, a Japanese movie not edited for a western audience Mm-mm. or an Indian movie not edited for a western audience Given our background, we think certain things are natural. But when you watch one of those movies, it's like, I don't get why this is interesting or, or what, what's happening because right. you just don't have that background. It's kind of like soccer, right? You watch it like, oh, what's <laughs> right, going right. on? Yeah. Back and forth forever. No one's doing anything. Clearly, we should be watching football right now. Yes, that's yes. right. I, I enjoy it. Russian films, but I have to be in the right mood because they're all yeah. very depressing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, and, and so Joe is the movie. can't go buff. too far on that because because the way that these stories work out in, in other cultures makes perfect sense given their background, but for us, we're lost. And I'm just like, well, I don't, I don't get what's happening. Hmm. I, well, let me give an example from Shakespeare. I love Shakespeare. And he obviously has either comedies or tragedies and comedy does not mean ha 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 ha. Right, right. Uh, comedy means it follows Christian history, which means there's a, a happy outcome. And so you'll see all the comedies have a basic similar structure. There's people introduced, a conflict happens, a bad guy comes into the story, introduces a conflict, and, and there's a bunch of turmoil. And usually the conflict is based on ignorance that has to be overcome. You find out some things you didn't know, and then you overcome the conflict. And then uh, someone returns, like usually it's a king returns and sets everything right. And almost every comedy follows that, that kind of pattern. And the tragedies are the other way. Someone who's virtuous in many ways ends up suffering and losing and it doesn't seem right. And it's usually occurring in not Christian history. So for example, King Lear is pre-Christian England. Hmm. Here you have a guy, he overcomes, he realizes his fault. He, he repents of it. And what happens? He and Cordelia are killed. Like, yeah. What? He repented. It's supposed to be a happy ending, but there's no Christ. There's no redemption offered in that world. Even if you did repent and learn lessons, so what? Yeah. So there's, that structure makes a lot of sense to us. And we might say, see, the fact of comedies proves Christianity, but it's the other way around. It's because we're steeped in Christianity where we see, yeah, that is how history works out. There's an original goodness. There's a conflict introduced. There's a difficult time. Mm. And then the king returns and sets it right. Mm. You know, and maybe, maybe another way of asking the, the kind of meta question here would be to, and that's kind of what we're doing in this podcast, just putting it a number of different ways to see if they... Yeah they extract anything for us, but, you know, I can't help but note that God seems interested in revealing himself to us in this thing that we call life. You know, I I think it's worth reflecting on that. um, It's worth reflecting on that somehow the meaning of being a human is supposed to be something that develops over ordinarily, at least over a series of time, you're young, you grow up, you get old, you, you go through changes. and, And then the, uh, the cosmos itself is written in these kinds of rhythms. You know, we talk mm-hmm. about seasons and this yeah, sort of thing. I think thing. you're right. Generalization is revelation of God. Yeah. And, and I guess the question would be, um, should we expect a certain kind of, if, 
if the Christian gospel, God coming down, actually, if the Christian gospel uh, were to, uh, can be seen as a, a truth, you know, a historical truth about what God has done with history, the whole story, if you will, mm -hmm. should we expect a kind of uh, specially prominent resonance, if you will, a sort of fractal pattern, if you will, uh, that sort of extends through you know, sort of, we can look at, yeah. we can look at the self as a, as a coherent story. We can look at the story of our family or of a nation mm -hmm. or of all people as a coherent story. Yeah. And there are sort of threads that, are, that, that sing. That's the logos, right? What? That's the logos, right? The intelligent. Yeah, yeah. There are threads that singularly illuminate all, all, all through those same things. And I wonder if maybe one way of framing this would be to say, that we should maybe it wouldn't be surprising if the particular content of the Christian gospel illuminates the rest of those threads in a particular way just because it's true. It yeah. participates in the same logos, you right. know. Sure. So I, absolutely, I think that does happen. The, the problem is if it, it becomes a circle if you use it for apologetics, right? So the immediate proof. Truth, this reflects it, therefore Christianity is true. Yeah, it, it's not the yeah this this side of things is the. Uh, it's the bonus <laughs> in a but, sense. But, but what I'm also cautioning about though, is what I call jumping levels. So that you go right to the incarnation. Right. And you've, you've not really, it's, it's, it's not just because of the importance of the cross, but it's really because you've downplayed in your own life, what you can know from general relation. So I call it the minimalist view or what you brought up earlier, the, the uh, holding people accountable view, like general relation just makes you inexcusable. But then you need the incarnation to know God. It's like, no, the creation reveals God in all of the glory of God is seen there. And we're to know that. And the fact that we don't know that is one of the reasons why we need redemption. Right. right. So what you're saying is basically the, the monomyth that's baked into the fabric of reality that we're all trying to interpret. We're all trying to interpret general revelation Um it sort of manifests itself in various idolatries and it's not general re revelation is not um, explicit enough for us to say your idolatry is wrong. I got it. Correct. Here's the correct thing. It's the incarnation. That's basically what you're trying to say that we're well, all, we're all I think you could say, I think you could say, I think general revelation reveals that what I think what it means when it says they suppress the truth right. is not a kind of a, they know and they hide it, but they suppress it by teaching falsehoods. So, so instead of thinking of it in terms of the inner psychology of the suppressor, mm. think of it as the objective truth. They put something else in the place of God. So for Aristotle, it's this uh, unmoved mover. Right. Right. And I think you could show from general relation that Aristotle is wrong about that. And for Plato, it's the demiurge. I think you could show from general relation that Plato is wrong about that. I think that we get an example in Acts 17 of going down that road. He doesn't quote right. the Old Testament, right? You, you just, from general relation, you can know the Epicureans and the Stoics are wrong. Right. Yeah. And that's right. what we should be encouraging people, challenging Christians to do, because I think it would end up in better art, but it also avoid this kind of circles in apologetics. Right. Right. And here's the well, thing about Jordan Peterson. He's exciting because he's reminding us of the take responsibility for yourself. Stop blaming everyone else. Uh, learn how to do things. Right. And that's appealing. There's no doubt about that. You, you're, you have latent powers in you that you can learn skills and you can clean your room, get a job, have a paycheck, pay your bills, right? Just basic things that we maybe thought we didn't have to teach people. So those are great. But if we leave it there, we'll call those virtues. If we leave it there, that life can also be empty.
And if you have a very capable person who knows lots of right. things, right. And life is empty. And I don't know what's going on Jordan Peterson, but it seems like he struggles with this kind of existential stuff. His own philosophy is not helping him with these things. Hmm. Yeah, there's a moralism that sort of takes over that you're, I think you're, you're wanting to guard against people just sort of going down this moralistic, therapeutic deism, I guess. Yeah, is the right. Phrase. Yeah, good. Right, right. But I do think that Christianity, I think that all of the things, all of the patterns, everything that we're talking about, and as we sort of start to wrap up a little bit here, mm-hmm. um, I think that all of the patterns, everything that we see, I do think that Christianity, as uh, Joe was saying earlier, uh, makes all of these, brings all of these stories into the concrete via inc- incarnation. And what you're helping me think through is, well, we can't just leap there, right? So we can't just sort of take these general patterns and then run to the incarnation and say, that's the concrete example of all of these myths. And they become fact via incarnation. But I do think that um, because we are reasonable souls and God has made us in his image and his fingerprints are all over creation and everything testifies to him. Psalm 19, uh, Romans one, Romans two, the law of God is written on our hearts that we're sort of groping in the dark and we're pulling at things that are instinctively built in us to want to run towards the good. Aristotle in first sentence of his uh, ethics says this right all inquiries all thoughts all propositions i think uh point to some good Mm -hmm. some highest end some highest good highest end um and then our passions get in the way because we're broken and we're sinners and and so we distort that right we just our desires run away from us and we grab onto other things that are uh, you know bent um but we are all moving in the direction of the good in some capacity. And I think that's the appeal of art to Christians when they use it in an apologetic method is that we're just simply pointing to that. And we're saying, why, why do we all do this? There's gotta be a reason. My only, cause you're right. You know, we've noticed things like good and evil in art, conflict, struggle to pursue what is good and overcome evil in our lives or in in a society. So there are those patterns there, but I would have a caveat to say this. I don't think everyone is struggling toward the good. Hmm. I I, I know Aristotle says that, and I agree with him. There is a highest end, but I think what we'll find out is that no one is seeking. Yeah. Well, and we try to blame something else. This is why we like Jordan Peterson. Take responsibility for yourself. You're not right. seeking God. You, you lie to yourself and you tell yourself you are and you try to lie to others and tell them that you are, but no one is seeking God. Yeah. And everyone's in this condition of not uh, pursuing God, yeah. even though that's our highest good. So that's part of the the, the question mark of human. Yeah. Or, you're, or uh, a, a synthesizing way to put it might be that you're seeking the good under the guise of an idol, you know, yeah, under the right, face right. of an idol. So it's so like I, think that's what, I think that's what the Logos does is the Logos exposes that. And it yes. doesn't allow us to continue to live as if idols are meaningful. Now that may not get us to Christ, but it gets us to the emptiness of what we have. And, and the way you know that someone's life is empty is because they go to excess, which we always see with idolatry. Well, and, and you wonder if this is the other, so this will be my, because uh, we are, we're going to wrap it up here as All Dale right. just said, but maybe this is a final way to sort of, to sort of couch it. Um, is that you have this instance where, for instance, you could think of a plausible narrative 
uh, where it's interesting that religion, for instance, ancient, you know, sort of, sort of, sort of ancient Near Eastern religion, the universality of the theme of human sacrifice, you know, is so sort of distributed among the nations, just the notion of sacrifice. And we could come up with sort of things in general revelation that might account for why did human beings ever develop the instinct or receive a tradition of sacrifice. Um, mm -hmm. Something you know, else. Church fathers, one of the church fathers narratives there, of course, is that um, he, this is actually a human instinct. It's something that we recognize, but it was distorted by sinister spiritual agents, right? Mm -hmm. That it's sort of, maybe there's some demonic influence even in sort of the, yeah. uh, in sort of, and I wonder if there's a- That's a, that Luciferian a, branch I was talking about. Right. What? That's that Luciferian branch I was talking about. Yes. Yeah. And I wonder if there's another way of talking about stories here that you could say something like, um, because God is making this history, this particular narrative, this particular story, uh, this is the story, the story of humanity in Christ is the story he's always been going to tell. Right. And so the language of the imagination and of the cosmos itself from that same logos, from that same creator is written there. But part of what idolatry does is take the, the architecture and the components of that story and then recombine them in ways that tell something fundamentally different. So all of a sudden this theme sure. of sacrifice, which in Christ is actually going to become this pure, beautiful, holy thing in South America <laughs> under right. the reign of, you know, under the reign of an Aztec empire is the most heinous, you know, bloodthirsty, you know, it's just, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people, you know, this sort of thing. Yeah, uh, well, I think, I think so. But I think once you say, once you establish Christianity, then I think we have a story about how this stuff happened, right? there's remembrances back to Babel, at least, when the nations were dispersed and they had a common right. culture. And before that, yeah. there's remembrances probably back to Cain and Abel. So mm -hmm. I think you end up seeing, there's two branches of what a sacrifice is, the Cain branch and the Abel branch. And the idea, we have an immediate sense, maybe that the world is not as it should be. Although I think we, we tend to view ourselves as doing really well and the world's broken, but I'm doing great. So yeah. take, I, that's why I love a Christmas carol because I think that shows... What does it take to come to realize you're not doing good at all? Yeah. Right. And ultimately it's confronted with his own mortality. Yeah. So as a side note, just to say it, it takes a lot. The whole story takes to get Scrooge to the point of just admitting. There's a one point where he says, okay, maybe I've been doing some wrong things, but basically I'm a good person. He's like, no, that's not enough. You have to go further. You're not basically a good person. Right. So I think that story is there. And once we have Christianity, we might give some explanation of the nations being divided, et cetera, that explains this original awareness of that story but then you're right, right. You, you get some sense that since i need to be saved i can't do it someone else has to right yes and so then you get a story of osiris or whoever it is they'll come and save me even though then i think once you start exploring them you'll see that these are more like the luciferian examples of the light bearer coming to save you from so so what are you being saved from and by yep. who matters it's the miss yeah the the convenient misidentification of our true problem yeah uh, exactly. which is uh and we have our you know and the, the other reason it's interesting to talk about myth motifs this way is of course we have our own versions of them uh, uh you know our own uh not me joe you know mark well I except for do. dale of course <laughs> but you know marks Marx and Freud, it's so fascinating to me in 19th century thought when you read Marx or Freud or Nietzsche or Durkheim, all mm -hmm. these people, I was just telling Dale actually this today, I think that they all have a version of the Adam and Eve story. Yep. They all have their primal Rousseau, you know, they all have this well, primal- Well, Freud's story. very explicit of taking the side of the serpent. 
Yes. And, there, and Marx and doesn't this, have that, I don't think. Well, Mar I mean, I've heard people have told me that Marx was a, a Satanist in a literal sense. I'm talking about Luciferianism as a kind of a story, not. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. I've heard people, people say, no, Marx was I was, Satanist. All right. They say they have yeah. his journals. I don't know. But but I think at least I think this is true. I've heard him called a Christian heretic for this reason. Hmm. Yeah, I, right. he, takes, he takes that story of conflict and redemption and makes it just material. Right, right. There, uh, being Ray, I was uh, being a child of, of sort of '90s evangelicalism during the height of the satanic scare. Uh, yeah, of same. course, one one of the ways that you um, uh, really freak people out about Saul Alinsky is that Rules yeah. for Radicals was you know dedicated to Lucifer. That's the right. well. That's a good example. He means Lucifer yeah, yeah. in the sense I was using it, not. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. Is that I think, uh, that's not quite what he's. That's the, that's the other side of finding the gospel in is finding Satan in. Right. So why yeah, is Mark wrong? He's a yeah. Satanist. Right? Yeah. yeah. Why is yeah. Lord of the Rings good? It's the gospel. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think you know, and we are going to wrap up now because right. we could go forever, gentlemen. That's and right. We'll have to do it again because this has been a good conversation. Yes, and and we'll 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 have we'll have more, uh, yeah. but I think um, on a real fundamental basic level, you are correct that the if we're trying to bridge the gap, so to speak. Then what we what we do need at the end of the day is special revelation. We need God's revelation in the scriptures to tell us exactly how we resolve our problems that we innately understand. We have a we we have an impulse to believe in God because what can be known of God is clearly revealed: His eternal Godhead and power. We recognize that his law is written on our heart. Our conscience condemns us when we do something evil. We feel our own mortality. The world is wicked. We're going to die. What do we do after that? We need redemption. And redemption only comes through the Messiah, the Christ. And it's not generally revelation, but yeah, I, I don't think you can get redemptive knowledge from general revelation. Right. Although That's what I'm saying. Knowledge assumes general revelation. Yes, precisely. Yeah. You need special revelation yeah. for redemption. Yeah. It's just true. Yeah. Um, so what we've, I guess what we've come to understand is Dr. Anderson hates literature, <laughs> hates art. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, he hates this. No, no, I don't. Right, 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 right. Well, thank you, brother. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on and we will thank definitely so do it again. Very, very uh, stimulating conversation. Yeah. Um, but uh, as always, um, uh, everyone out there, you can uh, find us at uh, Davenant. Uh, institute.org and uh, this will be on the Davenant Institute YouTube page. Please uh, head over to um, Dr. Anderson. I think you have your own website. Owenanderson.com. Yeah, my YouTube name is just Dr. Owen Anderson. So, And you, you also have a website dedicated. Yeah, DrOwenAnderson.com also. Right. DrAnderson.com. And we'll link to that, Joe. Remind me when we get off the call and I'll uh, send you the link. Uh, but we also have a Facebook group. So you can go to facebook.com backslash pilgrim faith. Uh, group. And uh, we also have a Facebook page. Um, if you guys find this edifying, we're also supported by our listeners. So uh, if you'd like to donate, there'll be a button on our page on davenantinstitute.org. But we thank you all for listening. We uh, look forward to seeing you all next time. Joe, I love you, brother. Love you too, man. And uh, Dr. Anderson, thank Thanks, you so guys. much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys. See ya. Okay. All right.